Uh, I've been an intern here uh, at Lakeview uh, for about a year and a half now, but uh, typically I work with college ministry uh, with Kevin uh, downstairs. Um, and uh, man, that has been just uh, so much fun. Um, and and uh, I've gotten to really know uh, Aaron and Kevin and, and the rest of the staff uh, during this time. Um, but you know, uh, Aaron and Raisha, uh, they just went to Kevin this morning or earlier this week and were like, man, Riley is so awesome. Can we please have him? Can we please borrow him? And uh, he was like, yeah, so here I am. Um, but no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but it was, uh, in all seriousness, I will say that uh, it is a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, and I'm thankful for uh, Aaron um, in, in sharing his pulpit and uh, allowing me uh, to steward it, trusting me to steward it. Um, and when he asked uh, me to teach this morning, he said, you all are going through the book of Matthew. So if you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 13, and we'll be looking at verses 44 uh, through 52 this morning, uh, and really just picking up where uh, Carrie left off uh, last week. Uh, and so before diving in, uh, I just want to make a note uh, to say that what I always like to do uh, before uh, just diving right into the text is, is providing a contextualization of the passage uh, that we'll be looking at and then move into um, the, the meat of the text um, just to give you guys an idea of, of what we'll be doing. And, and, um, and uh, so, so first thing we'll be doing is providing an immediate context of verses 44 through 52 uh, just serve as a refresher of previous weeks, and I do this because I don't think that Scripture should ever be viewed in isolation of it of another. Uh, I think doing so runs the risk of misinterpreting or misunderstanding what is being said. Um, so immediate context, and then we'll walk through each verse, and then uh, I'll actually end with context and then connect this to the application for this morning. Um, but this this uh, ending context will be kind of like a greater overarching um uh, examination like where where we find Matthew uh, or where we find Jesus in this chapter of Matthew. Um, so uh, so verses forty four through fifty two. Uh, let's read uh, let's read it now. Uh, verse forty four. The kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold, uh, sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, uh, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. At this point we'll just seek the Lord in prayer. Um, Father God, we thank you for this um, uh, for this time uh, where we can look at your word, where we can read it together and study it together. And uh, Lord, I just ask that you would prepare our hearts, uh, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, um, that, that you would speak through me, um, uh, that everything would be clear, um, 
and that ultimately we could use what we look at this morning to um, grow in our love for you um, and, and also uh, use it to, to better equip ourselves for, for sharing the gospel. Uh, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, okay, so what is the immediate context of, of this passage uh, and, and why are these verses important? Um, I don't know how long it's been since all of you were in chapter 12 and, and 13 um, or, or how Aaron chose to, to break all that up. But one of the main themes in the Gospels uh, is the problem of, of, of unbelief, uh, right? So like ever since Matthew 4, uh, what has characterized Jesus's ministry uh, is that no one believes him to be who he says he is. Uh, and so he's gone around doing all these things, performing all these miracles and doing all these teachings and we go to chapter 12, and, and what's happening? Jesus, again, has to challenge the Pharisees, the religious leaders, um, as he has time and time again. Uh, and, and this is actually really important uh, because um, um, what it does is chapter 12 establishes the point that the Son of God has come, uh, and he has fulfilled all the prophecies and performed all of these miracles and yet, even though the people see him, like, like they can physically see Jesus living and walking among us, or among them, um, even after all of these things and witnessing all of his miracles, they still do not know or believe uh, in him and instead choose to rely on uh, obedience to the Mosaic law um, and, and their, cultural, um, their cultural customs as their source of salvation. And so an example of this is, uh, when Jesus had, uh, had healed a person's hand on the Sabbath or when he cast a demon out of someone in chapter 12, instead of focusing on the amazement of, of the miracle that had just happened before them, uh, what, um, um, what instead happens is that the Pharisees um, see Jesus and they get mad at him for not, honoring their moral co- uh, for not honoring their moral codes, not respecting the Sabbath, not choosing to rest on the Sabbath. Um, and from that point on, they start uh, conspiring against him and uh, plotting how to kill him, and, and uh, in one section of chapter 12, they actually accuse him of, of working uh, with the demons, uh, which is crazy, uh, but it is uh, nonetheless a, a very serious matter um, and an accusation that is worthy of death in and of itself uh, during that time. And so knowing this, Matthew then spends the entirety of chapter 13, uh, what we'll be looking at today, attempting to draw attention to the fact um, that, that Christ actually is who he says he is, um, and and uh, in this section, uh, Christ uses uh, parables uh, to build this understanding of himself. This is what Matthew is recapping uh, or, or touching base on. So uh, in, the, in chapter 13, we see Jesus, Jesus speaking almost entirely to the crowds um, around him in parables. Uh, and, and he's trying to teach people that they need a Savior. Uh, and so uh, the law is not capable of saving them any longer, um, as, uh, as was cultural norms to believe. Uh, this was Jesus' attempt to say that and to, uh, to bring attention to that. And so typically, when you see parables uh, in, in Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, um, they are used to make abstract truths more concrete, or what is unclear more clear. Uh, and this is done, uh, as we see here, by comparing truths to physical examples um, that are uh, sure to be understood by uh, their audience. And so what's actually interesting in this chapter is that the opposite is true. Here, parables are used to hide truth uh, from those that don't have the spiritual eyes to see or the spiritual ears to hear. Um, and, and 
Jesus, of course, says this in verse 13. Um, so therefore, those who are not meant to under uh, those who are not meant to understand won't, and those who are meant to understand what Jesus is saying in these parables will. So in in, in chapter 13, parables are how uh, Jesus communicates truth without being silenced by the Pharisees and the other people who are uh, trying to uh, silence him. So now, without all that being said, looking at verses 44 through 52. Uh, I want to call your attention to just a couple things. The first thing uh, is that from uh, verses 1 uh, all the way through 36, uh, or, or excuse me, through 35, Jesus is talking to crowds. And so there's a shift in this audience at verse 36 where he goes from talking to the crowds to then talking only to his disciples. Uh, and, and this is important um, uh, because when uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, as we know from what Carrie said last week in verse 11, Jesus has already revealed certain truths to his disciples that have not yet been revealed uh, to, to the crowds that he was speaking to. Uh, and so they already know about how the kingdom of, of God will come into being. And, uh, and, and, um, and because of this, we can assume that something different is happening as he's now addressing his disciples. Second thing I want us to see is a shift in the, in the parables themselves. The first parable, the parable of the sower, uh, the focus is on how people respond to Christ. Uh, we are told that some people will respond to the gospel by faith in Christ or by uh, continuing to uh, indulge in, in, in worldly passions. Um, uh, the second, the parable of the weeds, Jesus focuses on the judgment of the weeds um, as the unrighteous people. Uh, we know that with the parable of the weeds, there will be people all around us who are not Christians. Right? And, and if they go their whole life without ever repenting of their sins, then the parable of the weeds tells us that their faith is to be met with the fiery furnace, uh, eternity um, uh, away from Christ. And then the third, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. Um, and we know that like the mustard seed or the leavened bread, which is also used, um, the kingdom of God will grow and will expand. Um, but something uh, changes uh, with verses 44 through 52. Um, and of course, the shift being verses that we're looking at, uh, where we see how the kingdom goes from becoming something, as Jesus is, expanding, uh, is explaining what the kingdom of God will be like. So the kingdom of heaven goes from becoming something to now he's talking to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is now already something. Uh, so from becoming to being, already being something. So the previous parables try to explain the realities of Christ and his kingdom to those who didn't understand, but this is to his disciples who already know these things. Um, and and uh, this is important as we uh, continue to go forward this morning. But uh, all that being said, first point for the morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the parable of the hidden treasure, as you'll find in verse 44. Uh, it reads, um, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy goes and sells all he has and buys that field. And so uh, with, these, uh, with this parable and with the second one and, and the third that we'll look at today, especially, uh, man, there are a variety of, of interpretations. Um, but the main point for these verses, uh, for first parable and second and the third parable um, is that the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value. And I'll explain why. Um, but first, what is the kingdom of heaven? Right? Like that's in, that we need to answer that. The main sense 
is that the kingdom of heaven today is the rule of Christ in the hearts of his people. So the kingdom of heaven is us. Like it, it's, it's Christians. Uh, and Luke 17, uh, verses 20 through 21, also affirms this by saying, uh, the kingdom of heaven is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, uh, behold, the kingdom, of he- uh, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's already here. And one author writes on this point that by saying that the kingdom of God is coming in ways that, that cannot be observed, uh, what is meant is that the present kingdom rules invisibly uh, within the hearts of believers and is therefore hidden uh, from physical eyes. Um, though, of course, its impact is, is clearly seen around the world. Um, but now, why is the kingdom of heaven compared to a hidden treasure? Um, the context of the passage uh, sheds light on this. Um, quite simple, really. Uh, during this time, uh, there were no banks uh, or, or safes, and so if you had something of value, uh, you would hide it. You would cover it up. Um, um, some people would put things in the ground. Uh, others would, uh, would just attempt to hide, as, as this passage suggests. Um, but it's, it's interesting because there's also a biblical precedent for uh, this, like elsewhere, uh, Matthew 11. You were all looking that, at that a few weeks ago. Uh, Matthew 11 says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So, so some things are hidden to some, revealed to others. But what this point is meant to convey, as, as uh, Gil Rue writes, uh, these great truths have been hidden and are like a buried treasure. You can be standing right over it and not know it's there, you can be within inches of it, yet you may be blind to it. Uh, and so for the man to find the kingdom of heaven in the field implies um, that there's like an accidental nature to it, uh, that, that he, he could not have intentionally found it. Um, but uh, but this, this accidental discovery of the treasure in the field um, really has its roots in a truth that has uh, already been alluded to um, throughout this chapter and, and the book of, of Matthew as a whole. Um, and and it, the, the thing that's alluded to is, is this. If the kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure, and if the kingdom of God is the rule of Christ in the hearts of his believers, in the hearts of, of his followers, then this is significant because it means, like, it means that what is hidden can only be revealed by the sovereign work of God who calls his people to salvation in Christ. The implication of this, of course, is that not everyone will find this treasure. So everyone in the crowds that Jesus was talking to up to this point had both physical eyes to see Jesus and, and, and physical ears to hear Jesus. But some were without understanding, and that is because their hearts were, uh, were, were blinded by either earthly passions or, again, the cultural interpretations of, of uh, the governing laws, of, of the Old Covenant, Old Testament laws. And so... Those who can see and can understand everything that Jesus is talking about are those whose hearts have been softened to understand by the work of the Holy Spirit. And due to this, it's important that we also remember what Scripture teaches elsewhere, like in Romans 10, where it says, only those who hear truth can respond to truth. So only those who can hear the gospel can respond to it, which means that there is a need for someone to preach this truth. And in previous parables, uh, we're only told that uh, some will come to faith in Christ. Uh, We're not told who or how many, uh, and and neither were the disciples. Uh, And and, in doing this, 
Jesus is, is uh, establishing an example uh, for us to follow, uh, for us to pay attention to. Um, and so because Jesus is saying to his disciples, uh, uh, saying this to his disciples, rather, he is attempting to teach them about what disciples of Christ are supposed to do, what he expects them to do, namely, share the gospel. But what else is he doing? He says that upon discovering the treasure, the man in his joy goes to sell all he has to buy the field. So what this means is that following Christ may require us to sacrifice all that we are and all that we have, as, as was the case here, um, to, to ultimately have him, to ultimately know him. Um, and, and we know that all of this will be worth it uh, as the man's joy indicates. He goes in joy to sell. Now, how can we infer, uh, infer this? How can we know this? Well, the previous, uh, the previous parables. The unrighteous will be tossed into the furnace, but as verse 44 says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, but also elsewhere, Paul says in Philippians 3 that um, I count all things as lost for the surpassing value of, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And there's an application here. Uh, I'm going to actually wait till we get through the second parable uh, to address this application. Um, so now if we want to look at the second point for the morning, um, the parable of pearl of great value. Uh, that's verses 45 through 46. <clears throat> this reads, um, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. So note again, the use of again uh, here is to connect the same idea that the kingdom of heaven is, is worth something. It, it's, it's valuable. It's important. It's, it's significant. Um, it's just that now, instead of being compared to a hidden treasure, the kingdom of heaven is uh, compared to a pearl, a fine pearl. Uh, and What's interesting to note is that in Jesus' day, uh, pearls were really just some of the most valuable things that you could have, um, some of the most valued, uh, valued gems in, in society at the time, uh, and were even purchased as investments. Um, so a merchant would go and look for pearls and sell them or purchase them um, and, and keep them as an investment, much like uh, we would do with diamonds or gold uh, today, um, except pearls back then are worth far more than, uh, than diamonds are. Um, and to this end, uh, John MacArthur made a really fascinating point. He said uh, the, the Talmud, which was um, the Jew, uh, one of the Jewish uh, uh, books of Jewish law, excuse me, says that uh, pearls are beyond price. And so using this, he says that Egyptians would actually uh, worship the pearl, and, and the Romans followed suit. They did the same thing. And so he says when women wanted to show their wealth, uh, they would, they would uh, put pearls in their hair, they would wear them, um, we see this in 1 Timothy 2. Um, but uh, another thing, the, the wife of a Roman emperor um, uh, is recorded as uh, going to um, like a dinner party, like an event uh, where she was having, where she wore pearls in her hair and around her neck and on her wrist and hands and things like that. Um, and it was worth like $36 million, you know? Uh, so these are just super, super valuable things. Um, and he also adds that when Roman emperors would want to show off their wealth, and uh, what they would actually do is they would dissolve the pearls in vinegar and then drink them in their wine, um, which is just crazy. But anyway, he says, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is, is, is like 
this, is like these very pearls, and not even like them, but more valuable than them. And that's worth paying attention to. Um, but one more observation can be made. So in verse 44, we read that the kingdom uh, is, is like a treasure that a man found. Here it's uh, compared to uh, a, a pearl that a man was in search of. So to this point, Stuart Weber uh, comments on the difference stating that every choice a person makes is somehow guided by his or her search for ultimate fulfillment. Before God breaks in, we simply do not know what we are searching for. Uh, most people search in the wrong places, seeking fulfillment through deceitful worldly passions, um, such as wealth or pleasure or power or fame, yet never finding it in those places. When, God, uh, when by God's gracious guidance, we find the kingdom, we realize that it is what we have been searching for all along. The pearl merchant recognized instantly the value of the one pearl because he had measured the value of many lesser pearls throughout his life. So he says, he, like the treasure finder, went and sold everything he had in order to possess the pearl. So, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there is an application for these two, uh, for these two parables. What is it? Uh, so, so from these parables and the rest of the chapter, we can infer that there are people around us who are in need of the truth of the gospel. The Lord has planted seeds within the minds of men, and some uh, uh, will ultimately accept Christ, as we know, um, uh, like those planted in, in good soil, and those um, will, and, and there are some who will ultimately reject Christ, as um, Jesus mentions in the parable, uh, or like those planted in bad soil. But Christ has called his disciples to follow him in spreading the gospel. And as Christians, we had the exact same calling. Um, but as we saw in chapter 12, we know that there are those who hate Jesus and hate his message and, and are now actually plotting to kill him and, and will likewise uh, uh, soon um, do the same and, and plan the same things for his followers. So what Jesus has done here is lovingly remind his disciples of the supreme value of what they have, right? And, and to remember uh, this because it will, it will ultimately come at a cost. There is a cost to following Jesus, to following Christ. Um, and, and cost, as, as we saw in the parables, is, is selling everything um, that they had, uh, the man or, or the merchant, um, in order to um, possess uh, these things. Um, so I don't, I don't think, to, to now apply it, uh, I don't think that we literally have to sell everything that we have in order to be a follower of Christ. Um, but I do think that sometimes sacrifices are required of us, and sometimes sacrifices will be required of us, um, and, and some things will have to be decided on. And I would imagine that for some of you, in order to rightly follow Christ, um, you'll have to go against some cultural pressures at some point. Now, whether this is popularity or athletics or whatever, um, I think you all know what is uh, hindering your walk or what could potentially hinder your walk with the Lord and what your temptations are. And this is to just simply say that the kingdom of heaven is worth more than that. It's worth it. It is, it is worth our entire lives to follow Christ. And with that, we'll transition into the third parable. Verses 47 through 50 it reads, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. 
the angels will come out and separate from the evil and from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, if you'll notice, Jesus begins the parable of the net as he did with the parable of the pearl with, again, uh, except here we see that the value of the kingdom of heaven uh, is, is not in comparison to uh, another object, um, uh, but instead it is the reminder of judgment. Uh, we see the, the value of the kingdom as it relates to um, the fate of those who have not repented and come to faith in Christ. And so because of that, this parable is more closely related to the parable of the weeds, as you learned about last week. And what this means is that in the world back then, as it is today, there is a coexistence of believers with unbelievers in the world around us. And this will continue to be the case until Christ returns to collect his people. Um, and, and again, this is, this is exactly what we see in the parable of the weeds. Um, when a wheat uh, is welcomed by Christ and the tares are thrown into the fiery furnace, they're cast out. So too is it with the fish here in this parable. Now, the second, uh, this is the second time that a parable has started with again. And as you know, anytime something is repeated in Scripture, whether that's words or themes or ideas, uh, we should probably pay attention to it, right? So uh, before we started in verse 44, Jesus had literally just explained the parable of the weeds to them. Uh, so like, this is still the same conversation. Um, this, these are not to, meant to be isolated. Uh, it, it is one conversation. Um, so, so don't forget that. So why does the parable of the pearl reemphasize the value of heaven? And why does the parable of the net reemphasize the separation of, of the good and the bad or the righteous and the unrighteous? He do, Jesus does this um, because it's meant to, to beckon our focus um, on, on the gut-wrenching realities of, of hell, right? Like hell is a reality. Um, in the parable of the weeds, the main point is to highlight the fiery furnace um, as a result of those in unrepentant sin, those who do not come to faith in Christ. To contrast this, the parable of the hidden treasure uh, and, and the following parables that, uh, that we're looking at now focus on heaven as the reward for the righteous. So, so don't forget what we've already learned about in, in Matthew 13. Thus bringing us to our final point, and what I believe to actually be the most significant uh, section that we're looking at today, uh, verses 51 and 52. It reads, Have you understood all of these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I love this section. It's just incredible. So what's happening? Here, Jesus is speaking to his disciples still. Uh, and again, in the immediate context of Matthew 13, all of these things that, uh, that Jesus is referring to here is all the main points of each of the previous parables. So the gospel response, how we respond to the gospel and the parable of the sower, the growth of the kingdom, uh, the value of heaven, the faith of repentant, all of it. Uh, the focus, all these things, is the main points of all of these previous parables. And these two verses, man, they are just like such gems because of, of what is seen and what is understood after the point of comparison has been discerned. Jesus asks, do you understand? His disciples answer, yes. Therefore, Jesus says, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Therefore, scribes, who can also be understood as teachers, 
can are uh, are compared to a master of a house, uh, also can be like a, like a homeowner. Um, so in the New Testament, homeowners uh, are seen as those who possess some level of wealth and dispense of it uh, in order to do what is needed for the house. Um, uh, and so here, uh, the master or homeowner brings out of their treasures uh, what is new and what is old. So, okay, now we ask, um, who are the scribes and, and why, why this comparison? It's an interesting one. Verse 51, Jesus says that scribes, uh, he adds a qualifier, scribes are those who have been trained for the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and as disciples of Jesus, keyword being of, disciples of Jesus, they are not merely just learning about Jesus, but they are people who have become fully devoted to him, leaving everything behind and committing to the cause of Christ. Therefore, what this means is that Jesus has their complete allegiance. And this is important because those who have been trained for the kingdom of heaven are those who have become disciples of the kingdom of heaven. So just as a master is a steward of his house and therefore is loyal to it and responsible for accomplishing all that needs to be done and for caring for it, so too are the disciples of Jesus for the kingdom of heaven. They're responsible. We are stewards of the kingdom of heaven. And the order of what is said here is also important because the parable shows that a discipled scribe or teacher has this understanding of the parables only after Jesus has given it to them. Not that understanding makes them disciples. They, they already know uh, they, they are disciples before Jesus gives them the knowledge after the fact. And, and here, like, you can know, you, you can have a knowledge of Jesus, but never be a follower of Christ, right? Like the, the text supports that idea. Uh, so the disciples are those who have faith in Christ and have acquired an understanding uh, that many others do not have. This understanding includes the knowledge of salvation and of the Christian life, which are consistent with the themes that we see in the previous parables. And, and these things, this understanding, uh, the scribes, are now compared to the master of a house who brings out of his treasures what is new and old. What, what does new and old mean? This means that that the treasures of new and old are the revealed truths of Jesus. He as like so Jesus is the author of the new covenant, and he is the fulfiller of the fulfillment of the old covenant, new and old. And the bringing out of treasures also isn't without significance. It's meant to convey a purpose. Uh, like no one brings out their valuables uh, from safes or storage uh, without reason, right? Like, like. Anytime we do this, it's, 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 it's meant to convey, uh, it's, it's meant to do something. So, so treasures, therefore, when they are brought out, are, are meant to be displayed. They're meant to be revealed and seen and made known. And at this point, I hope light bulbs are starting to turn on. What Jesus is doing by making this comparison is laying out the expectation that he has for his disciples. What is it? This expectation, of course, is to teach others of the treasures of heaven which are so valuable that they are worth selling everything we have to possess them. Treasure more valuable than that which was hidden in the field or than that of a fine pearl. This treasure is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Son of God, Prince of Peace, the very one who is soon to be the crucified lamb and soon to be the risen Savior. So like, why, man, why this, this section is, is just so, I, I, I'm just, yeah, I love it says, this parable is so important because it is ultimately a commission. 
right? Like we're not in Matthew 28 yet, so we haven't talked about the Great Commission. But, but these verses right here, these two right here, that's what they ultimately are. They, they are a commission. Um, and um, and, and it, this is not only for the 12 disciples, but for all followers of Christ to come to go and proclaim the good news that he brings, which is a way to be reunited with the Father and saved from the perils of, eternally, of eternal suffering, of the fiery furnace. So the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven, is ours to steward as the master, uh, as the house is the master's to keep and to care for. And we do this by making his name known among all people in all places. So to close, the reason why these verses are so significant is because of the greater overarching context in which all this takes place. Chapter 13 finds itself in the middle of Jesus's three-year uh, public ministry, right? And during these three years, um, we see Jesus's popularity grow and increase um, early on in the book of Matthew, like around chapter four. Um, but as the book progresses, we see his popularity decrease and then instead his opposition increase. Um, and I think we see this hostility toward Jesus uh, really begin in chapter 5 when John the Baptist is arrested. Um, but I think the tone of the book really begins to shift in chapter 10 when Jesus warns his disciples of the persecution that is to come. And as we've already seen uh, and, and learned about in chapter 12, uh, Jesus uh, just literally in, in the previous chapter uh, is accused of working with demons. Um, and, uh, and even after he uh, healed a man's withered hand, uh, they began conspiring on, on how to kill him. And then in chapter 14, as you'll learn about uh, in, in a couple of weeks, John the Baptist is beheaded. And so from here, persecution will only intensify. It only gets worse. So chapter 13, and these two verses specifically, are in the midst of two really pivotal points. And Jesus, knowing that his death is looming, and it will actually occur within a year, uh, but also knowing that his disciples will, too, uh, will soon uh, to face the, 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 the death, uh, will, uh, excuse me, will soon face death and persecution. Jesus, just very tenderly and intentionally, and I would imagine very solemnly, takes the, uh, take this moment uh, to ask his disciples, do you understand? This is my question to all of you this morning. Do you understand the full value of heaven and full realities of hell is real. Um, and with this, there's two things I want to say. First, uh, the reason I, I briefly mentioned um, to all of you uh, what, what took place in chapter 12 uh, is because I fully believe uh, that there are some of you here this morning um, that, in a sense, are, are like the Pharisees. Not, not in the sense of, of wanting to kill Jesus, um, but rather uh, in thinking that you are saved and good uh, because of your cultural surroundings, right? Like your cultural um, teachings and influences. Um, and, and let me explain what I mean. Uh, the Pharisees were religious people uh, who just consistently missed the point. They, they just completely like looked over everything that Jesus was trying to communicate. Uh, they accused him of not honoring the Sabbath. And uh, in the first few verses of chapter 12, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus heals a man's hand in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 12. The Pharisees accuse him of not resting on the Sabbath. Jesus says, I am tending to my sheep. He casts out a demon, and they accuse him of working with the demons. So everything that Jesus uh, does is meant to show that he is truly the Son of God and that salvation is only in and through him alone. 
No one comes to the Father except through me, uh, except through the Son, he says. So Pharisees just continue to resist him and trust that obedience to the law, to the Mosaic law that, that they followed was actually the source of their salvation. And eventually the stubbornness, this insistence um, that, that they are saved by living rightly ultimately hardens their heart so much so to the point that they actually want to now kill Jesus. And they will never come to faith in Christ. Why? Because they already think that they're saved. So my main point is this. Like, look, look at me. Like, listen. The reason I ask you if you understand is because all of you are at a crucial point in your lives right now, uh, I think, because of this reason. You come to church. A lot of you were raised in the church. A lot of you have grown up in the church, and, and, and you know who Jesus is. Awesome. That's great. But this is also a time where in wanting to use these formative years of your lives to, to grow you into good and respectful people, our parents are also teaching us how to be good and respectful people, right? Like, and this is, this is a good thing. But my point is, is that it is possible for us to hear all of the do's and don'ts and confuse what our parents teach us about being a good person for what Jesus teaches us about being a redeemed person. We call this moralism. We're not meant to be good. We're meant to be redeemed. We're meant to be saved. This goodness flows from the love of the Lord after, only after we know him. And this is important. Um, so listen, like John MacArthur says this, morality and religion give the deception that all is well with God when it's not. Morality and religion is a soul-numbing deception. As long as a person believes he is immoral, he can be saved, right? But it's when a person believes that he is moral, that he thinks that he doesn't need a savior. At your age, I just feel that it is so easy to trust more in pleasing our parents or those around us and doing good things and convincing ourselves or tricking ourselves into thinking that we're good and then completely forget that Jesus says that even our best deeds are like filthy rags before the ultimate perfection of the Father. So we don't, I don't want us to be consumed by thinking uh, whether our mom wants us to do this or that or that we need to play football and baseball in order to win the approval of, of, our, of our dads. Like, in order to win their approval, the most valuable thing that we can ever possess is not trophies or straight A's. It's the kingdom of God. That's what, this, that's what these verses talk about. That's what they say. We are sinners, and what we need is Christ as the Savior, not morality. And this is our reminder that even the nicest people can be thousands of miles away from Christ. Like, lastly, the second point I want to make um, is that if we have any shot at being someone who honors Christ the way that he rightly deserves, we don't do this by merely acting well, but by cultivating our hearts to grow and in, in love for the Lord day in and day out, every single day for the rest of our lives. And when you do this, how? By reminding ourselves of the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. Guys, so like when Jesus asked his disciples if they understand uh, what he was telling them, uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't just trying to say, hey, have you, have you understood all these lessons about the parable? He wasn't asking if they knew what he was teaching in the parables or, or just only asking that. He was also asking if they were truly ready for the persecution and the hardships that they would face by being his disciples. And so when the hard days come, and they will come, and when your faith is tested, what will enable you to remain steadfast in your faith is not just a knowledge of Christ. We're not learning about Christ as his disciples, as his followers. What will enable you to remain steadfast in your faith is actually a supreme love of Christ and sacrificial love for others 
which is loving them more than ourselves, surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we remind ourselves of this value, um, we, we, we do this because when the enemy strikes, um, we, we also need to remember that the souls of those who are perishing are, are well worth anything that, um, that our enemies could, could do to us or, or, or anything that, that could be taken from us. Right, so like we, we, see, we see the faith of those who do not know Christ, and we see a commission. We see a need to go and, and take the gospel to those who need it, to those who don't have the understanding that we have. I pray um, that if the time comes, uh, that we would actually sacrifice everything that we have to see the souls of, of the lost saved um, and the kingdom of God advance.